And this morning we'll be looking at Luke chapter 14, uh, verses 25 through verse 35. Luke 14, 25 to 35. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able, with ten thousand, to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and seeks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Seek the Lord's blessing on this, His holy word. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to you, Father, for the great gift that you've given to us in your word, that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life, and you provide it to us in our own language, our own tongue, that we can read it, and by the power of the Spirit, we can understand the truth that is here. And we do pray, Lord, that as your word goes forth, even this morning, the power of the Spirit, that it would find within our own hearts that rich, fertile soil that brings about great and abundant fruit for your glory. We pray now for your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Some 80% of Americans call themselves Christian. And of those, 68% say that they're committed Christians. But only 45% say that they're born-again Christians. And sadly, according to a Barna survey, only 75% of those who call themselves born-again Christians are actually trusting in God's grace alone for their salvation. And so that means that even though 80% are professed Christians, only about 34%, or perhaps even less, are actually truly walking as disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, this was this survey was back in 2005, and I'm sure it hasn't gotten any better. Obviously, though, we can't use a survey to determine 
people's hearts. Only God knows the people who are truly His. But this survey does support the truth of Jesus when He says in Matthew 7 that not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of My Father who is in heaven will enter. Calling yourself a Christian doesn't make you a true disciple of Jesus Christ. So what does it mean then to be a true disciple? What distinguishes a a nominal professor from a committed follower? Well, to find out, we look not to a survey, but to the Word of God. And in our passage this morning, Jesus clearly defines what it means to be His disciple. And as we'll see, being a true disciple of Jesus involves not only devotion and commitment, but also great sacrifice. And yet for many who profess to be Christians, well, this is just, it's just too much. And they don't have what it takes to preserve and persevere in true discipleship. And so the key question that that you need to be considering in your own hearts this morning is this. How about me? Am I really walking and following Jesus as a disciple in the way that He defines Do I have what it takes to be a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's begin with a a formal definition. The the dictionary defines a disciple as a convinced adherent of a school or individual. Now, of course, this certainly fits how the Bible uses the word a disciple. The the Greek word for disciple basically means one who engages in learning through instruction from another. So a, a student, a pupil, or an apprentice. And so if you're a teacher, well then your students are your disciples. Of course, when the Bible talks about disciples, though, it's more than just students sitting in a classroom. But students closely following the teacher, not only in doctrine, but also in how they apply that doctrine to their everyday lives. And so if you're a teacher, it would be like the students following you home and and staying with you 24-7. Sounds a lot like homeschooling. In fact, homeschooling is one of the key ways that we can disciple our own children. But being a disciple means ultimately learning to live as the teacher lives, not just learning what the teacher believes. Now, it's important to remember that, that Jesus wasn't the only one who had disciples during his day. There were many other teachers or rabbis, and so there were many other disciples. We know that, for example, the, the Pharisees had disciples, John the Baptist had dis- disciples. And of course, this wasn't just something that was uh, among the Jews, practiced among the Jews, but even the Greek and the Roman philosophers all had their own disciples whom they were seeking to train in their various philosophies and world and life views. But when we hear disciples today, we most commonly think of those who were the followers of Jesus. And in fact, followers of Jesus is the second entry in, in the dictionary under the term disciple. 
Well, though the twelve were specifically chosen by, by Jesus to follow him closely, we know that the many uh, other students followed him. Many others followed Jesus. But there were also many who followed him that actually weren't truly his disciples. And this likely describes many in the great multitudes of verse 25 that now went with Jesus. So you have the the twelve, and then you have the larger body of of his committed followers, and then this great multitude who were following Jesus. But the question we want to ask is, why would they follow Jesus even though they weren't truly his disciples? Well, there could be several reasons. First, some just wanted to be entertained. We know Jesus stirred up great excitement everywhere he went, not only through his teaching, but especially in the miracles of healing and casting out of demons that caught the interest of many people, and they thought it was it was kind of cool and exciting. Well, these spectator followers really had no desire to make any kind of change in their own lives. They just wanted to sit back and watch the show. And sadly, we know that there are many today who attend various churches and various places who are more interested in just being entertained and, and being served by the church than in making any real life-changing commitments in their lives. And so they're the spectator followers. Well, secondly, there were, like many, there were likely many who followed Jesus because they ha- did actually have real spiritual, physical, and emotional needs. And certainly many of whom Jesus healed, we know, did become true disciples, but not all. You think about the healing of the ten lepers. Only one came back and gave thanks. And only one, Jesus said, that his faith had made him whole. But the other nine never came back after being healed. So we call these the Band-Aid followers. They just wanted to uh, get relief from their affliction. Once healed, they just went and they went off and lived their lives as usual. Again, we can think of many people who today would cry out to God, and they're quick to cry out to God in a time of crisis. But whenever that crisis is over, well, they just go back to living life as they did before. They receive the band-aid, and now they just continuing on. Well, a third group of followers were those who thought Jesus was the Messiah. Now, indeed, He was the Messiah whom God had sent, but He wasn't the Messiah that the people that a lot of people had imagined. Right? So these were the fashioning followers. Right? They had created a Messiah after their own image. One who was going to be a political leader who was going to lead them and deliver them from the yoke of the Roman Empire. They were not guided by the truth of God's Word. And then, of course, when they realized that Jesus didn't fit their mold of who the Messiah should be, well, they rejected him and they, they walked away. Again, there are many people today who follow a Jesus that looks nothing like the Jesus revealed in the Bible. 
Because they've cast aside the authority of the Bible and they've created their own Jesus. They've created one who isn't offensive to them. They've created a Jesus who who doesn't demand too much of their lives. They've created a Jesus who even condones and encourages them in their sin. They've fashioned for themselves a false Jesus. A false Messiah. A fourth group that were following Jesus were those who made an outward profession of faith, but again then found it too hard to keep up with what Jesus required, or they were carried away by false doctrines or the concerns of the world. And we call these the the fadeaway followers. And these are the ones, for example, that Jesus describes in the parable of the sower, the seed that was sown among the rocks, and as well as the seed that's sown among the thorns. In both instances, that seed sprouts up quickly, and it looks vibrant. But it reveals in time that there was no roots to keep it secure. Or in the case of the seed sown among the thorns, it ends up getting choked out by the cares and the concerns of this world. And so for these followers, ultimately, it becomes revealed that they really had no established roots, that there really wasn't a true faith there, and that their love for the world was actually greater than their love for Jesus. A fifth group that followed after Jesus we could call the hypocrite followers. And these, of course, loved to listen to Jesus, and they liked being seen with Him or associated with Him, but they put on a good show outwardly, but inwardly, there was no real heart change. And in secret, they lived lives contrary to how Jesus had been calling them to live. And we can think of Judas Iscariot as a great example of a hypocrite follower of Jesus. Well, then a final group of those who followed Jesus were the scribes and the Pharisees. And it's interesting that everywhere Jesus went, the scribe and Pharisees were sure to follow. But they weren't friendly followers. They were enemy followers. They followed Jesus in order to trap Him in His words, to discredit Him before the people, and to throw various stumbling blocks in His way. They were lied with their father the devil as they sought to destroy Jesus and keep the people in darkness. And again, we can see those enemy followers even today and those who stir up false teaching and leading the people of God away or tempting them to to be led away. So all these different groups, aside from, again, the true disciples of Jesus, all these people were following Jesus around in in these large crowds. So what then does it mean to be a true disciple? All these people were followers. We could say they all were disciples, but we know they weren't. So what distinguishes then these followers... And the true disciples. Well, as Jesus addresses the crowd, he gives four requirements that really distinguish those who truly follow him. And and ultimately, if, if these four requirements aren't met, 
that as Jesus says three times in this passage, you cannot be my disciple. And so as we look at these four requirements, the first in verse 26, Jesus makes a very shocking charge. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Hate. Did Jesus just say that we're to hate other people and not only just other people, but even those closest to us? He did. Now this would have been just as shocking to the ears of those in the crowd as it is for us to hear. But before you protest in disbelief, it's important to understand the point that Jesus is making here. Obviously, Jesus isn't intending for his words to be taken literally. Because if we do, well then we find ourselves in the midst of a great dilemma between Jesus' words here and, for example, the fifth commandment, which says to honor your father and mother, as well as all the commands that Jesus gives elsewhere to love your neighbor as yourself. But since Jesus is full of truth and grace... And since He is the very Word of God come in the flesh, well, we know that He can't contradict the law of God. And so something else must be understood by His use of the word hate in this verse. Now, certainly Jesus could be using exaggerated speech in order to make a sharp point. And if so, well, then you can't get much sharper than this. But it's more likely... That when Jesus uses the word hate, he means not the the vile emotion that we often think of, but as a way to indicate less preference or less love. So when Jesus says, hate your relatives, he means that you must prefer them less or love them less than you love him. And this is the sense that we get from the parallel passage in Matthew 10, verse 37, where Jesus says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, if you're going to call yourself a disciple of Jesus and be a true follower of him, you must put him first in your life over all the relationships in your life. Jesus is to be your first and foremost love. It's significant that Jesus calls for such preeminent devotion. You see, because by doing so, He's actually equating Himself with with God. Because this is the same command that God gives in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And the, first, uh, the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And so when Jesus is saying, you need to love me first and foremost, He's equating Himself with God the Father. Because Jesus is God, He alone can make this claim to be the supreme love of our lives. Anything less than this 
Anything less than this focused devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ and and our great triune God is idolatry. But we remember the other love commands as well. And so obviously having Jesus as our first and foremost love doesn't mean that we don't have to love others. No, we, we do. In fact, we must. But our love and our devotion to Christ ought to govern and influence all other relationships. Right? It's not just that, that Jesus and God is, is at the top of the list and we love Him first and then we move on down the list and sh- share our love between uh, our, our spouse and our parents and our children and, and neighbors and on down the list. No, God is overall and influences all those relationships so that our love for God is going to drive our love for others. Even for our enemies. And so this is certainly a great challenge. Especially when we consider how much we love our families and even our own lives. But Jesus is very clear. We must love Him more. He must have the position of being first and foremost in your life. If He doesn't, then you cannot be His disciple. Now, as if that wasn't challenging enough, the second requirement of being a true disciple is found in verse 27. Jesus says, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus had said something similar back in chapter 9, 23. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And the same truth is is repeated here. Now too often, when we think of bearing a cross... We think of enduring some temporary hardship or trial, perhaps a disease or or illness or putting up with difficult people. Now certainly, we may have to endure such hardships. And if we do, if we're believers in Christ, then we must do so with love and patience and understanding. But when Jesus speaks of carrying a cross, he's, He's not talking about some passing difficulty in our lives. He's not talking about, oh, I've got to go bear my cross and and spend the weekend with Aunt Bessie and she's cranky. No, Jesus is talking about death. When people saw someone carrying a cross to the streets of Jerusalem, they didn't think the guy had some troubled relationship he needed to endure. No, they saw a man who was condemned to certain death. Death is what Christ requires of us. But what kind of death are we to die? Well, there are two ways. First, the Apostle Paul puts it in terms of putting to death the old man of our sin nature and putting on the new in Christ Jesus. So that each and every day we're to put our sin to death. Not only confessing our sin before God, but repenting of it. That is, actually turning away from it, running from it, and choosing not to let it gain a foothold 
in our hearts and in our lives. We put to death our sin nature when we rely on the grace of God to be able to turn away from sin and to put on the good works that Christ has called us to do. Things like love, peace, joy, gentleness, kindness, generosity, compassion, and forgiveness. Beloved of God, are you willing to put your old patterns of sin away like anger, envy, lust, greed, hate, pride, immorality, drunkenness, and gossip? Are you willing to put those sins to death in your life every single day? If you're a true disciple of Jesus Christ, you must. But this carrying of our cross can also imply another kind of death. Not just the death of our sin natures, but the death of our very lives for the cause of Christ and the gospel. Carrying your cross means following in the suffering of Jesus. It means being publicly humiliated, enduring insults, mocking, ridicule, persecution, false arrest, imprisonment, beatings, torture, and even death. Because of your faith in Jesus Christ. It means sharing in a very real way in His suffering, in His affliction, and His death. Because He first shared in your suffering and bore the curse of death for you. Beloved of God, do you understand what Jesus is saying here? He isn't saying, go commit suicide. He's not saying you purposely and ignorantly need to put yourself in the way of danger. He's saying, carry my name. Carry my name and profess it with boldness and honor and endure the consequences that may follow. Friends, if you aren't willing to do this, then Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. The third requirement Jesus sets sets forth is actually a warning. It's a warning so that you aren't caught unaware by these things such as suffering and death when they come. And they will come. Jesus assures us of that. If you're a true disciple of Jesus, these kinds of trials will come. And so in verse 28 to 33, Jesus warns that you must count the cost. And he makes this warning with too many parables. The first illustrates the need to count the cost when you make the commitment to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the second warns that this commitment is something that you cannot remain neutral about. First in verse 28 to 30, Jesus warns that if you don't count the cost of discipleship, well then you're like a man who builds a building without first determining if he... If he can afford to do so, if he has all the funds to do so. The result is that the man is left with an unfinished building and he's out of money and his neighbors mock him and count him a fool. He had these great dreams of of building something wonderful. But because he didn't count the cost, he paid dearly and he lost everything. Oh, beloved God, the point is simply this. 
when you're faced with the call of the gospel to repent and believe on Jesus Christ and follow after Him, before you say, yes, Lord, you must take into account the cost. Because loving Jesus more than your family and putting Him first in your life may not go over so well with your, for example, your unbelieving family members. And some of you may have actually experienced this in your lives as you have become a Christian and your family hasn't. They may turn on you. They may turn you out and cut you off because of it. You must count the cost. You must also count the cost of carrying your cross for the sake of Christ and the Gospel. That you will endure ridicule and suffering and false accusations and possibly even death. Jesus doesn't want you to be blind to these things. And so He's warning. If you make this commitment to be My disciple, are you ready for these possibilities? If you are... Well, very well then. Trust in Christ and He'll give you this all-sufficient grace that you need to endure through to the end and you will be saved. But if you're not ready, don't make a false profession. Because if you do, you will be overwhelmed and consumed by the trials that will come upon you and there will be no grace to sustain you. Because your profession, your trust, and your hope were vain and empty. And don't think that you can just get by without making any commitment one way or the other. Because Jesus goes on to warn, you can't remain neutral. You must go one way or the other. And there really is, when you look at it, there really is only one sensible way to go. And to illustrate this, he does in verses 31 and 32, Jesus tells of a wise king who's about to be attacked by another king whose army outnumbers his two to one. And the king must assess the situation and, and count the cost. Does he enter into battle, take up arms, and go down in certain defeat? Or does he send an emissary to the other king and does he or and pursue peace? You see, regardless of what he does, one thing is certain he can't do nothing. That is, he can't remain neutral in this situation. He must respond one way or the other. After evaluating the situation, again, there's really only one reasonable thing to do that would spare his life and the lives of his people. But here's the key. Is he willing to humble himself in order to do it? Now some here think that the approaching king is is an evil enemy. But I would uh, argue that in this context that Jesus uh, presents, it's clear, uh, clear that the approaching king is Christ himself, who's leading his charge against sin. And that those who choose to harden their hearts against Him and resist uh, the call of the Gospel, they will be overrun. They'll be outnumbered. They'll be overrun when He comes again at the end of the age. 
But those who humble themselves before him and who seek peace and reconciliation, they will surely find it and they will live and their lives will be spared. But the point Jesus is making, you can't remain neutral in regards to the gospel because you're either for him or you're against him. And Jesus then summarizes this warning in verse 33. Likewise, whoever you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Again, Jesus isn't here talking about a vowed poverty or giving away all your earthly goods. No, he's, he's saying that you must be ready and willing to lose it all for his sake. And you must be ready and willing to use all that you have for his glory. Your time, your talents, your treasures, your devotion, and your life. You must use it for His glory. You must do this if you're truly a disciple of Jesus Christ because all that you have, and we acknowledge this, all that we have are blessings that He has given to us. And so ultimately they belong to Him. Even our own lives, which He has bought with the price of His precious blood. And so there is much at stake. And you should consider it carefully. You must count the cost. And if you don't, you can't be Jesus' disciple. Well, the fourth and final requirement that Jesus gives for his disciples is that they would be they would stay salty. Jesus explains this in verse 34 and 35. Salt is good. But if it loses its taste, how how do you season it again? Now the salt becomes useless. And it isn't even good for the soil, even for the manure pile. It's It's just thrown away. Well, what Jesus has in mind here is likely the salt from the Dead Sea. The salt found in the Dead Sea was mixed with other non-salt compounds. And so it was possible for the saltiness to actually leak out. So that it didn't taste like salt. It looked like you had something that looked like salt, but if you tasted it, it wasn't salty at all. Well, such saltless salt is useless. It couldn't be used to either preserve things or to enhance flavor. And so you just would throw it out. The point for discipleship is this. If you're to be a disciple of Jesus, you must stay salty. That is, you must be profitable and useful for what you've been called to do. As Jesus recounts in other places, if you would follow Him in faith, your faith must show itself by producing fruit. A life transformed by God's grace, faithful service and worship, ministry in His name and for His glory. You must be an active ingredient Working to make a difference. Not for humanistic reasons, but for the cause of Christ and the gospel. We know that faith without works is really a dead faith. And a dead faith is no faith at all. If you're a true disciple of Jesus Christ, you must bear fruit for His glory and as a witness to your faith in Him. Friends, if your life isn't salty and fruitful for God's glory then you cannot be His disciple. 
So then, what about you? Where do you stand? Do you find yourself as as one of the false followers in the crowd? Following Jesus for all the wrong reasons? Or are you a true disciple of Jesus Christ? As we've considered these requirements this morning, putting Christ first, carrying your cross, counting the cost, and, and staying salty and being fruitful, do you believe you have what it takes to follow Jesus as a true disciple? Now let me answer that question honestly for each and every one of us. The answer to do we have what it takes? The answer is no. No, we don't have what it takes. At least we don't have that what it takes within ourselves, within our, our fallen sinful selves. We don't have what it takes to follow Jesus. There's still something that we lack. And Jesus declares at the end of verse 35 that we need ears to hear so that we can hear the great truth that He set forth. These ears are the ears of faith. Opened for us. Given to us by the grace of God and the power of His Spirit. You see, friends, it's only by God's grace that the ears of our heart can be opened to grasp, understand, and believe these things. It's only by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit working in us that we have what it takes to be one who truly walks and follows along as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only by the grace of God that we're saved through faith in Jesus Christ. So are you resting and trusting in this grace alone? For your salvation? Or are you content with going through the motions and following Jesus for false and insincere reasons? If the first, well then praise be to God. But if the second, then be warned. Because if you haven't truly been reconciled with God, then you're not a true disciple. And you will be overrun when Christ returns on the last great day. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear by the grace of God and to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice and give thanks to You, Lord, for this this reminder and this challenge of true discipleship. And, and we look around and we see the broader church and what calls itself the church, perhaps even particularly here in the West, in our own nation, and there's such disarray. Many say they're Christians, and yet they're not true disciples. They are ignorant of Your truth, of Your Word. They've not fully turned away from their sin. They don't daily strive to rely upon Your grace to walk and live and and to put to death their sin. Some even form and fashion a false Jesus who loves their sin and glories in their sin. 
Father, we pray that we and other faithful congregations would not be that way. That we would stand as salt and light in this world. Even in this community. And that people would truly know that we are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ because of how we live our lives so differently than the way the rest of the world lives. But Lord, we know our own weakness and that each of us can fall prey to these even if for a time, which is why we must always keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Because without Christ, we can do nothing. And that we rely fully upon you to work in us sanctification. That we can be the disciples that you called us to be because your spirit is active, working in our hearts, bringing forth great fruit for your glory. And so we just pray, Father, That even now you'd pour out your spirit upon us. That you would impress these truths upon our hearts. That we would not be false professors. But that we would be true committed disciples. And that you would even now draw us all closer to yourself. And that we would submit ourselves to your holy will in these things. As we strive to live for your glory in all things. And so we ask, Father, for your blessing and upon us in this way. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.